0: coming up in the next day or the next week or whatever that is. Lord, we have all kinds of distractions. And I just pray that we would be able to lay aside those distractions and focus on the, the now, the right now, where Jesus, you are here in the house. Jesus is present here in this house. And we acknowledge that by singing to you and saying you are great, singing of your great works and, and your love and concern for every person here every one of us. Lord, I pray that we'll personalize that and and that we will be able to meet with you personally, each and every one of us, even though we're in a group. And I pray that you'll build our faith in the fact that you are this great God beyond anything we can imagine. And that God, that you would build our confidence and that we would be able to hallow out this, this sacred time with God's people, in God's presence, listening to God's word. And that, that nothing in me would get in the way of what you want to say to us today. This word is alive, it's living. And I pray that as we, we unravel the, roll, the scroll and we begin to keep looking at that, that you would speak truth to us today and that it would transform us. We would leave changed because we've been here. And we're going to thank you in advance because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. By the way, I just wanted to say that um, one of the things that we think about philosophically is that a lot of things we do are not just for those who are here, but we do things at this church for those who are not yet here. That's... The parking lot say, wow, it's a great parking lot, and it is, it's awesome, but there are a lot of empty spaces, okay? We want to fill those spaces with people that, that want to hear about Jesus, and so be thinking about that. One of the things that we do as a church is, you know, it's like having company every Sunday. You prepare the house, you get it ready, and you have some great food out there, and you make sure the parking lot's clear and nice, and you greet people as they come in. We're here, we're open to have company. So, And if you're new here today, I hope that you felt greeted and loved, um, and uh, that, uh, that you can you don't have to stay company, you can become family too, so just to let you know. This morning, I'm gonna ask all of you to think back a few years when you were in school. Some of you, that was just more than a few years, okay? Some of you are still in school, that's okay too. And just ask yourself the question, what was my favorite subject? And was my favorite subject always history? How many of you just loved history? Okay, five of you, oh, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. <laughs> Not too many. History is fascinating to some people. To others, history seems totally irrelevant. Why are we looking at this stuff? Well, one project that stirred interest in, in history for our children was when they were in high school, they were required to do a family history project. How many of you have ever done a family history project? Okay, Awesome. Awesome. Family history project. Trying to find out where did our family originate from, did they emigrate, when did they come to the United States, um, our family tree, all of those kinds of things. Now, history in general may seem abstract and irrelevant, but when we personalize history, when we personalize history, it can actually become pretty interesting. Did you know that my grandfather, on my mother's side, my grandfather earned his passage emigrating from Norway to America, as an entertainer. He was a tap dancer. That's where I get my moves. (laughs) Why are you laughing? One of my relatives in Norway was actually a highwayman. He was a bandit. And one of ours in the Pacific Northwest was a smuggler. So I came from a long line of religious leaders, dancers, bandits, and smugglers. That's my heritage. Now history becomes interesting because you know, it's part of my part of my story. Today we're going to look at some history, and my hope is that it will be relevant to you since it happened to your ancestors. It happened to your ancestors, your ancestors of faith. We're going to look at a passage that's just a, little bit, a little bit hard to understand, but hopefully by the time we finish today, you'll find that this part of history is relevant. We're going to look at a blast from the past, lessons from history. There are some strong warnings and there are some strong encouragements as we continue in 1 Corinthians. By the way, I, I'm aware of the challenge. Um, it, to do a, a book of First Corinthians you can't do in three Sundays or four Sundays. It's, we started in, in February and we're going to finish at the end of November, just so you know. It's kind of like trying to, trying to get in the middle of a, of a TV series and you have to go back on Netflix to watch the old part so that you get into the story. Okay, I understand that. We don't have something quite as interesting as Netflix, but we do have all the messages online. If you ever want to go back and listen to it, get the context. Um, you can do that. But we're we're kind of, and I apologize if you're new, we're just getting into the middle of this series, but we're doing the second half of 1 Corinthians starting today. So I'd like us to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. It's on page 929 in the Bible in the rack in front of you if you want to look at that. So 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to read 1 through 13 today. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And do not grumble as some of these did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you will be able to stand up under it. I know that looks weird. It sounds like, what is this about? We're going to try to unpack it a little at a time so we understand where this is going. It seems like nobody listens to history. And you ask the question, why does history always repeat itself? It's been said learning history is easy. Learning its lessons is almost impossible. Well here, Paul talks about the past, the history of the nation of Israel, and he talks about an incident particularly when they were wandering in the wilderness. They were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves, and there was the Exodus, if you read about it, in the book of Exodus, where they were delivered, and God led them through the wilderness and eventually to the Promised Land. It took 40 years for them to get from A to B. But that's that's another book of the Bible called Exodus. We'll look at that another time. Here, Paul talks about the history of the nation of Israel in order to teach some lessons to the believers in Corinth. Okay, you say Israel was ancient enough, Corinth was ancient enough. (laughs) What about today? What were the lessons? I want to say, what can we learn today? Five lessons of history. Five lessons of history. And I hope, hope we get through this and figure it all out, but you'll have all the answers by the time we're done. Well, some things. Okay. Paul says, I don't want you to forget what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness. And verse one and two talk about a shared experience. It was an experience the whole nation had. The Israelites were, were guided by a cloud during the day, and, and they had a pillar of fire at night, and then they went through this experience called the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, if you were part of that nation, that was an incredible shared experience. As a whole nation, they experienced this being led by the pillar of cloud, and then being led through the Red Sea. Together, they experienced an incredible display of the power and provision of God. And when someone personally experiences the power of God on their behalf, it has a profound effect. And since it was a shared experience under Moses' leadership, it united the people under his leadership. That's what this passage means. When it says they were baptized into Moses, you say, what does that mean? They, they experienced an initiation. Baptism is an initiation, and they were baptized or initiated into this experience that was an incredible, profound uh, provision of God, a miraculous thing that happened, and they were initiated into and under the leadership of Moses. This was an initiation event. It was a, a great unifying event that brought them together under Moses' leadership. As, if we look at it in, at times of national crisis in our nation, times that we've experienced crisis, we've, we've been united as a nation, incredibly united. Way. And it could, it could go back to December 7, 1940, when there was the attack on Pearl Harbor. All of a sudden, we were attacked as a nation. Everybody came into unity. Or September 11th, the World Trade Center attack. All of a sudden, we were united as a nation because of that. And the participation in these Exodus events way back then brought the Israelites into unity under the leadership of Moses because they had a shared event. It brought them together. They all experienced it together. You look at reunions and different types of things. There was a reunion of on, on September 11th. A lot of planes could not fly to anywhere. They were immediately grounded in one one plane ended up, or several planes ended up way up north into Canada where they can land safely, and, and they, they spent time with the townspeople who took care of them because they couldn't go anywhere, there's no place to stay, and they've had reunions about that event just because it was a shared experience, it was a profound experience. It unifies people. That's what it talks about, baptizing them or initiating them under the leadership of Moses, it was this event crossing the Red Sea, and he says, remember that. He said, don't forget it. Don't forget it. And then Paul goes on to say the Israelites ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Another part of this incredible provision is they were 40 years in the wilderness, and God provided water out of the rock, and he, he, he let manna come down from heaven. They ate manna together a spiritual food and spiritual drink. These were supernatural provisions from the hand of God, and they were spiritual experiences they all had together. They shared this common bond. In verse four it says, this is the interesting thing, if you if you're not sure about the pre incarnate pr- person of Christ, in other words that he existed prior to coming on earth, being born of a virgin, etc., it says and Christ was there. Christ was there. Christ was present with them. So the the, the first part of that remembering is amazing. And he draws the attention to the Corinthians. Some were were Jews and they understood this story. Some were Greeks and they didn't know a lot about it. But he said, this all happened and I want you to remember it. And then in verse 5, he says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. In other words, God destroyed them in the desert. Why did that happen? So these Israelites go through this incredible, uh, profound experience with God as a nation, all this other stuff, and then they were going to die in the day. In the, in the, because of that, in spite of these unbelievable miracles that God performed, they forgot. They forgot. I know we don't ever do that, but they, they forgot. They forgot. Their greatest sin was unbelief. They forgot history. They forgot that God was a God who could still work miracles. They could still work miracles. Do we ever forget? Do we ever forget? God provided financially last year, can he do it again? Oh I don't know. God provided your last job, he can certainly find you your new job. Is the God who healed your heart after that broken relationship able to heal your heart and actually bring you into a into a new relationship that's healthy? Is the God who brought you through the last parenting crisis able to bring you through this parenting crisis? And as I've learned, as you get older and your kids get older, parenting is forever. Okay? Your parents forever. Those of you that are up there in years understand, you, are, you never are not parents. It's like, you, if I can just get them through preschool, I'll have it made. Oh, you know, just high school. If we can just get them through college, we're done. Uh, sorry. You know, it's, it's, we're always parents, and it's one of the blessings, but sometimes there are crises, and, and God, you brought us through the last one. Can you bring us to this one? And we forget, and we go to God in desperation and say, oh, God says, remember? Remember. Or the health crisis, or the, the pain we've experienced. Don't forget your history. Don't forget your history. See, what happened to the Israelites is they forgot, and they had unbelief, and all but two Israelites Joshua and Caleb, all those Israelites 20 years and older, died in the wilderness short of God's promised land. They never made it. Why? They forgot. It was unbelief. They didn't didn't believe God could do it again. Now, why did they forget? Why did they forget? Why do we forget? Lesson number two, don't rely on past spiritual experiences. Don't rely on past spiritual experiences. Uh, these people under Moses had a, had a great past, but they had no present spiritual life. They had a great past, but no present spiritual life. See, our spiritual life cannot be all past. It must also be present. It, it's kind of like driving a car looking in the rearview mirror. Now, when I took driver's ed, I think it was, you're, you're trained every seven seconds or so, you're supposed to glance up the rear view mirror to keep context of where you're going. But if you're gonna try, and, and you may want, if you, do, if you do try it, make sure you're in an empty parking lot. But, but trying to drive, looking in the rear view mirror doesn't work really well. It doesn't work really that well. The rear view mirror gives us a perspective of where we were, but it cannot show us where we are or where we're going. And if you drive only looking in the rear view mirror, you're likely to crash. And many people live their spiritual lives looking in the rear view mirror, looking where they were, it's all past, it's all past. They never look at where they are or where they're going. They're relying on past spiritual experiences. Where are we today? Where are we today? Don't forget God's acts in the past. Absolutely need to remember those things. But don't live in the past. Some here may have had a dramatic conversion, may have had an emotional experience, a a high point with God, a a great spiritual encounter with God. You may have received the spiritual gift in in a dramatic fashion. Awesome. Awesome. But don't stay there. One of the most poignant examples of this is John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He was the uh, basically the father of the Wesleyan Church and he had young in his ministry he had a dramatic experience with God at a place called Aldersgate. If you've ever read history of John Wesley that's a predominant theme about his experience with God at Aldersgate. It was real. It was powerful. It was life altering. And he thought it was so life-changing and he was so close to God that he didn't think he would ever be able to sin again. He thought he was now sanctified. He was, he was perfect. He had never sinned again. He said, I, I've been entirely sanctified. He preached about it. And you can read the sermons about it, right after that happened. The problem is, John Wesley sinned again. And again. And again, and again. And he realized, and you, you, you look at his sermons and how he begins to moderate his position on that, realizing that, that even though he had an incredible experience with God, he could not rely simply on a past spiritual experience. He needed to live in the present. And someday, there, we will be totally, entirely sanctified when we go to heaven. And we get, you know, it's just not going to happen the sight of death, I'm sorry. And some of you, if you think you're perfect, well, just ask your spouse. Never mind, we'll we'll talk again. John Wesley needed to live in the present. Now, some rely on past religious ceremonies, whether it's baptism or confirmation or first communion or just uh, being raised in the church, consistent church attendance. Uh, you, You remember the unbroken Sunday school attendance pins of past? Yeah, it was one of those things that if you went on vacation, you had to go somewhere so you could make sure you got that pin. And some people... There's nothing wrong with consistency, but some people relied on their salvation on those kinds of things. It was all past. Now, all of these things are valid. All of the past is valid. It's rich, the heritage. But where are we today? We cannot live our faith on past memories or past experiences. Remember them, yes. Treasure them, yes. Learn from them, yes. But our spiritual life must be present, a vibrant living relationship with Jesus on a daily and a moment-by-moment reality. No one had a richer spiritual heritage than these Israelites who experienced the Exodus, but they failed to enter the promised land, all that God intended for them, because they forgot unbelief. So number one, don't forget God's acts in the past. Number two, don't rely on past spiritual experiences. And number three, learn from history. Learn from history. I found it's better to learn from other people's history than your own. Many of us are not quite as sensitive or, or, or teachable as that, but it's good to learn from other people's history, that's better. If not, learn from our history, learn from your history. Verse 6 says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. This history was occurred and it was recorded. Why? They were examples, they were warnings to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. To keep us from repeating history. To keep us from making the same mistakes. Okay, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. And then Paul lists four things. Basically, four sins to avoid, four problems in ancient Israel, four problems in the church at Corinth, in the ancient Corinth, and four problems in 2018 Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Okay, they're all, all problems. are still challenges that we have. The first one was idolatry. He said, do not be idolaters. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites worshiped the golden calf. You remember the story. It's pagan worship. They were accompanied that with eating and drinking, and it says pagan revelry, which included eating cultic meals and sexual immorality. There was all kinds of stuff that went along with that. That was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the form of idolatry that the Corinthians were arguing for, and we find this mainly in 1 Corinthians 8 when it's addressed uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and participating with all those kinds of things. Exercising their freedom to practice idolatry. That was, that was a different type of idolatry. And they were exercising their freedom to practice idolatry. And we're free to practice idolatry today. Now, what, what are some examples of idolatry? Because we, we think of idols and we think of these graven images and we don't, we don't do those kinds of things. Idolatry is defined in your notes. Is to let anything or anyone replace God in our affections. So let anything or anyone replace God in our affections. And many things that replace God in our affections are are good things. They're, They're healthy things. They're just out of balance, out of balance. Do not let anything replace God in your affections. Is something or someone else more important to you than God is? See, back then, God was invisible. So the people tended to worship things they could see. Today, God is still invisible. So we tend to to worship things we can see. (laughs) It hasn't changed. We still try to worship things that we can see. Four categories of idolatry. These are just a a short list, not exhaustive. Could be a possession, a house, a car, a boat, a cabin, clothes, a lifestyle. And, and we don't worship them overtly. You don't go, open the garage door, and you worship down. You bow down and say, oh, I worship you, oh, great BMW, oh, great BMW. That, that's not what we do, okay? But they become more important than everything else, and they replace our affection for God. Is there a possession that has replaced God in your love and affections? See, we can see it. Now, don't, don't judge someone who has a lot of possessions. Just because a person has a lot of possessions doesn't mean they're idolatrous. Only God can judge the heart. But many times we allow possessions to transplant God. It could be a possession. It could be money, any number of things. Then there's passion. Passion. God has gifted each of us with passions. I love the fact that when you talk to people, one of the things I'd like to find out is, what are you passionate about? What, what do you enjoy? What do you love? And it could be art. It could be music. It could be sports. Badgers or Packers, which is our first game today, right? Okay. Um, or it could be Vikings or Seahawks. I'm just trying to cover all the bases. It could be crafts. It could be mechanics. It could be carpentry. It could be reading. It could be hunting or fishing. All our passions are God-given. And they're good. They're good. As long as our passion does not replace God. Even a passion for church ministry can be idolatry if it replaces our love for God. Our ministry cannot replace or supplant our personal love for Jesus. I've seen many idolatrous ministers who, they worship the church and ministry far more than they worship Jesus. It's a real danger. That's why my personal relationship with Jesus has to be first and foremost or I can't can't lead. Confusing personal relationship with God with ministry to the church. Well, then there's pleasure. Pleasure, number three, uh, could be comfort and convenience. The, The two things that seem to be predominant in America are comfort and convenience. Physical comfort, comfort foods, comfort emotionally, right, relationally. We don't want co- conflict, so we just keep peace at any cost. So, so comfort or convenience. Convenience. Pleasure can include sensual pleasures, uh, drugs, alcohol, sex, or foods. It can be entertainment. One of the biggest issues in our culture today is, is entertainment, and which tends to be escapism and diversion. You know, it's, it's very interesting, and I don't want to get down on iPhones. Well, I'll get down on iPhones. Smartphones. I, the, the other day I was driving downtown. There's a group of students. They were waiting for a bus or waiting for something. And I drove past them and, you know, every one of them, about 18, 20 of them, every one of them was like this. looking at their, looking at their smartphone. It's a diversion. It is. It, it, and this, you know, and there, there are a lot of, a lot of um, studies going on now about the, the evils of social media and, and smartphones and all that stuff. They, they and What they do is they divert us and they, they keep us focused on what is not important, escapism. And, you know, we all need some escape and diversion. I, I agree. It's, it's good to have that. But what happens when that becomes the most important thing? That's, that's the question. Now, if you don't have a smartphone, I'll find something else, okay? But that's okay. It's, it's just one of those things we, we are pursuing. Then there are pursuits, number four. Job and education, ambition or goals, all good and all created by God in balance. The question always is, do any of my pursuits replace my number one affection for God? Idolatry, learn from history. The second, second one to learn, uh, second sin to avoid, to learn from history is immorality. Verse 8 refers to the Old Testament passage, Numbers 25, 1 to 9, wherever over 20,000 people died from judgment of God as a result of immorality. Wow. And immorality can include different things, but uh, there's physical immorality, which is sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexual acts. It can be perversion. Um, It can also be internal immorality, Lust. Looking at someone with lust is the same as committing the the act in God's eyes. Pornography, those are all kinds of things that are internal immorality. Spiritual immorality would be a spiritual adultery, worshiping other gods. And he says, learn from history. He said, these are listed as warnings from God to warn us of the consequences of sin. And we see lots of consequences of immorality. Just one of the travesties that we've seen, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's a, an authority figure uh, that gets involved in something with students or, or pedophilia or something that happens with a, with a teacher, uh, a spiritual leader. We see what's happening in the, in the Catholic Church. No church and organization is exempt from this type of thing. The diocese in Pennsylvania, over 300 priests over 40 years, over 1,000 victims children molested. Talk about destructive. And God is just beginning, let me, let me just say this, God is beginning to pull the, pull the covering back on this whole issue of sex trade and pedophilia happening all over our country. It started in the entertainment industry, the political inter- industry, the church, The it's just happening all over the place. There's not going to be any place to hide. This is, this is God's work to expose the evil in our culture because the most evil of all things, in my opinion, is pedophilia. Unbelievable. We are warned, and warnings are part of God's grace. It said, avoid immorality. What, these are what not to do. The third sin to avoid is testing God. Testing God, verse nine. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Oh, man, I, I, I don't know about you, I hate snakes, okay? <laughs> I, I don't like snakes at all of any kind, but, but uh, something happened there and, and they were killed by snakes. They were testing God. And the only place we're told to test God is in Malachi 3. And Malachi 3, it said, um, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and test me to see if I will not pour out my blessings more than you can hold. That's the only place in the Bible that says test God. And, and, he, and he says, test God. So that's good. But that's the only place to test God. That is not this. Testing means to put God to the test, seeing how far we can go. How much can we get away with? See, the goal of Christianity is not to see how much we can get away with and still remain a Christian. Some people think that's the challenge of Christianity. i to see how much I can get away with. That's testing God. Testing God. And it'd be like, like marriage the goal of marriage the love relationship is not to see how much you can get away with and still remain married that's absurd the goal of marriage is to see how close you can get to your spouse and how much you can grow in your love and affection and adoration some people just just get that turned upside down and the results of testing God are destruction the fourth sin letter D grumbling uh oh Grumbling. And do not grumble as some of these did and they were killed by the destroying angel. Murmuring and complaining. How can you tell if some people are grumbling? Their lips are moving. Just kidding. Just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Every time this sin is listed as grumbling or complaining, it's against leadership which is also against God. Complaining is listed alongside idolatry, immorality, and testing God, a very serious sin. That's why we have in our value statement, value statement number seven. Grumbling or murmuring brought divine judgment in the Old Testament because and, and divine, it brought divine judgment in the New Testament. It brings divine judgment today. Murmuring is the first sign of unbelief. It's unbelief of God. I don't trust God, so I'm going to complain. And we can, you know, and I know complaining is just kind of part of our culture. You know, we complain about, complain about our circumstances. Might be our health or leadership decisions our financial condition, our job, or our boss, or our station in life, our physique. We even complained about the weather. I, I get a kick out of it. We have friends that live in Phoenix. They've been down there a long time. And every once in a while we'll talk to them and, and Lynn, Lynn will say, Terry and Lynn, and Lynn will say, we had weather today. You had weather today. Okay, don't, don't, don't you have weather every day? Well, to them, weather is only when you get rain. You know, or wind, you know. Otherwise, it's, they don't have weather if it's 80 degrees and sunny, you know. That's, uh, but they said well, they got weather. But anyway, just just a little bit of culture. So if you go down to Phoenix, just ask them, are you guys having weather today? Just, you can do that. Well, murmuring or complaining causes more problems in churches than any other thing. If we have a problem with something or someone, what do we do? We've got two solutions. The two right solutions, first of all, pray about it. Uh, pray for the situation and wisdom. And second, go directly to the person concerned. You know, because any time you have more than two people, you're going to have disagreements, okay? They're, they're just, just the way it is. If you have a disagreement, you have a problem, go to the person concerned and just say, let's have a conversation, let's talk about it. Go directly to them. No telephone ministry, no gossip, no texting and emailing, no complaining, no murmuring. And if someone murmurs to you, what do you do? Gently in love... Refuse to listen or participate and direct them to the source. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, reprove him in private. And of course, the warning is grace. Warning is grace. We do not want God's judgment to fall on anyone's family or anybody else. See, the warning equals grace. Warning equals grace. Even judgment equals grace. All of those things are intended to move us back To God, And that's why he wrote this to these people and said, I want to warn you so that you don't get into this trouble that the Israelites did. Because I want you to experience everything that God has for you. I want you to enter the promised land. I want you to make it. I want you to be there. Then number four. Number four. Humble ourselves. Verse 12 says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Oh. In other words, don't get prideful. Even if you've avoided all these four in the past, and you, know, you can say, well, I, I'm glad I came out good on these four things, um, he says, watch out. Don't be prideful because of our spiritual past, because of our past victories, or even our heritage of faith. Be careful that you don't fall. See, it's not self-confidence, it's God-confidence. Let me say that again. It's not self-confidence, it's God-confidence. I've heard many persons over the years, after observing somebody that did something awful, (laughs) rightly and humbly say, but for the grace of God, that could be me. But for the grace of God, that could be me. You look at any public figure that has fallen, you look at any person that's done an awful thing, you look at somebody that went to prison, you went to somebody that that was even executed for, it doesn't matter, you can think of the worst sins and we see it every day on the news. And rather than say, wow, I'm sure glad I'm not like that. Instead say, but for the grace of God, that could be me. Humble ourselves. That's learning from history. He says, don't think you're all that hot because you're standing. Be careful because you could fall as well. Finally, number five, okay. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. This is Paul's encouragement that follows his warnings. He has all these warnings. And then he comes to verse 13, and he says, we're all in the same boat. Verse 13 says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man or common to all people. And God is faithful. He would not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The solution to this, four facts in the boat. I'll just say four facts in the boat. Letter A: All of us experience the same temptations. All of us experience the same temptations. Guarantee it. It may take different forms, but all of us are tempted in idolatry, in immorality, in testing God, murmuring, or pride. And that means two things. Number one: We are not exempt from these temptations. We are not exempt from these temptations. Number two: We are not alone. We are not alone in these temptations. Look at your neighbor and say, you're not alone. Say it. Okay, you're not alone. Okay, so no matter what temptations you've experienced, you can say, we're not alone. That, that's, that levels a playing field and helps us understand that we are all in the same boat. It's common to all of us. Letter B, God is faithful. God can be counted on. There's a, there's a, there's a word called loyalty. It's faithful love. It's, it's, a, it's a covenant word that, that when we receive Jesus Christ and he becomes our savior, we enter into that covenant relationship. It's a beautiful, it's a huge topic, but it's a beautiful illustration, and there's loyal love. And it's called faithfulness, that God is faithful to us. And he says, even if you deny me, I will be faithful to you. It never ends, it's unconditional. He's always faithful, God is faithful. Let us see. God sets limits to our tests. God sets limits to our tests. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. Now, that doesn't mean we'll never fail, but that our failure will not be the result of having more than we can handle. Okay? In other words, sometimes it, it it may happen. And the Greek word we translate as temptation really means more of a test. Test. Something designed not to make us fall, but to test us so that we emerge from it stronger than ever. We emerge from it stronger. In letter D, God will provide relief, a way of escape, so that we will be able to endure it. God doesn't promise a life without tests, and everybody said, amen, amen, only that he will give us the strength to endure, a way of escape eventually in God's strength. This is history, a blast from the past, lessons. Don't forget God's acts in the past. Don't rely on past spiritual experiences. Learn from history, humble ourselves, and remember, we're all in the same boat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us some lessons from history, and I pray, God, that you'll help us to be able to apply these lessons and understand what they are. And, Father, that we would by your grace, be able to extend that kind of grace to others around us. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people of grace and that we would understand that your warnings are grace and that we're not, we're not perfect people. We are people under the grace of God that are forgiven and, and restored in relationship of no no earning of our own but you've done that so I pray God that you would make us a gracious people and that we would learn from history that we would look back and and that we would live in the present too and we thank you in Jesus name let's stand shall we